Hello, this is Deo Muano with Persevere to Excel. It's been a while. I'm excited to be back with this next four podcasts focusing on some recent books that I've read, um, specifically looking at the black experience in America. So today, the first book we're going to discuss is Reginald Lewis's book, Why Should White Guys Have all the fun. Hello, I'm excited to be with you guys. I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, up in New England, in New Hampshire, the weather is starting to change a little bit. So hopefully it's a good sign of spring being around the corner. My name is Deo Muano. I am a creator, innovative consultant, speaker, performer, and I create this platform to be able to discuss and share stories about perseverance. So, and the framework is that uh, anything that's happening within people's life that are trying to overcome or what they have overcome in the past in order to bring encouragement and motivations to other. So I started to read some books within the last four months and I decided that I'm going to do podcasts around the themes of of the books that I've read. So I have a really long list uh, cast by um, Elizabeth Wilkerson. I have Sword and Shield, which is an autobiography that looks at Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. I read um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Abraham Kinde. I've also read Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun by Reginald Lewis. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Reginald Lewis is actually a great uncle of my wife. Um, my wife is father's side of family are originally from Baltimore. So I was, I became aware of Reginald Lewis a little bit more. I think it was around 2011 when my family and I traveled to Baltimore to meet my wife's extended family. And I was able to learn so much about him. And it took me a little bit of time before I picked up his book and started reading it, uh, which was about two months ago. And the book completely changed who I am as an innovative entrepreneur. Um, so I'm going to just talk a little bit about the book. So Reginald is a little bit of an outlier. He's a true Renaissance man. Uh, he grew up in Baltimore with his family and he uh, ended up going to a uh, local university to play football. And during his time at the university, he experienced some injury because he was a, you know, a freshman. So he uh, decided that he was going to transition from playing football into just working and earning a little bit of money. So that's what he did. But during that experience, he discovered a lot about himself. Um, he was always he was always a hustler. There's a story in the book where he was doing a paper route where he would deliver paper. And one summer, something came up where he had to travel and he couldn't be around. So he gave his mother his route. So his mother and his mother's friend would walk around and deliver the paper. So when he came back, guess what this dude did? He said, Mom, where's my money? And the mom was like, what do you mean, where's my money? He's like, no, mom, where's my money? You delivered paper, you got paid, right? Um, so it's just it's just to show a little bit of his character. This he, he always worked very hard in a very young age. And then when he got to college, um, he always had a, a lot of different things that he was involved with. And um, 
so I, w- I wanted to specifically kind of focus around this whole theme about being resourceful, being innovative, and being creative. So Reginald, towards his junior year, he wasn't really the best student. He was a he was a hard worker, but he wasn't really like the best student. Towards his junior year, he really started to think about what he his future was going to be. And during his senior year, he found out that there was an opportunity for uh, a summer program at Harvard to experience the law school program at Harvard. But the caveat to that was you couldn't be a senior. You had to be a junior. And this was specifically targeting African-Americans so they can be exposed to different programs that Harvard offered. So when he found out about this, he was gung ho. He was like, no, this is, this is me. This is, this program is designed for me. And he started to envision his future right away. He was like, this is it. I'm going to go to this summer program. And after this summer program, I'm going to make my case and I'm going to get admitted to Harvard's law school. So this dude was driven. Like he had a vision, like he saw it. He saw that vision. And more importantly, he followed the vision. So it wasn't just him saying, hey, this is what I want to do. But he actually literally pursued that vision. But like I said earlier, he had to be a junior. Couldn't go for that particular application as a senior. But this dude went and asked one of his teachers to write a a letter of recommendation for the program. He explained to the teacher what the program was about. But come to find out, the school already had recommended certain students that they felt best suited for this program in terms of grade and um, and them being juniors and all of that. So the teacher writes this amazing letter of recommendation and brings it to the administrator, the administration office that was dealing with the program in order for the school to submit it. Right. So. They looked at the teacher and they said, hold up a second. Why are you recommending Reginald? <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't really recommend Reginald for this because, first of all, he's a senior. Second of all, he doesn't really have, you know, the strongest grade. We already have a set of students that we're going to recommend. Well, somehow they convinced, they were convinced to include Reginald part of the four students that they were going to recommend. And I think with Reginald, it was five total. One, Reginald was a senior. Two, he didn't have the best grade. So they submitted the application, and guess what happens? Reginald ends up being selected for the program, for this exploration program at Harvard in the summer, in Harvard Law School, to take some classes. So Reginald gets accepted. Now he started to feel like he's one step closer to that goal, right? That, that, that this, is, this is his ability to make a case so he can get admitted to Harvard Law School. So he goes to the summer program. Prior to starting the summer program, my man is studying. He gets all these books around law and and all this litigation stuff, and he's just digging deeper and deeper. He is prepared. And that's one thing that I kind of wanted to stop on and just talk about a little bit. Like sometimes when an opportunity is presented, 
we get really excited and we think that say, right? Oh, opportunity is presented. But we forget like when the opportunity is presented, what do I need to do in order for me to better equip myself in order for me to apply myself, engage and demonstrate, right? So with Reginald, like he realized that a lot of those students, his colleagues that were going to be in the program with him, you know, they might have had more access and they might have some other advantages. So he wanted to make sure that he was going to be able to play ball with him, meaning like he can show up and hold his ground. So this dude just studied, 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 studied. He showed up to the program and he started to gain intention from some of the teachers that were teaching those classes over the summer at Harvard. So my, my dude decides to continue with this plan, right? He start planting seeds. He talked to some of the teacher after, after class. He started developing relationships with them. And the closer, the closer the program got towards the end, my man decided to go for it. So he went to one of the professor that he had some, some sort of a cultural relationship with, and he said, I think you guys should admit me to Harvard Law School. And the teacher looked at him and said, whoa, 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 we, you, you know we can't do that, right? Like, this program is not a pathway for somebody to just get in, right? Like, we can't do that. And he's like, listen, like, I've been doing this, I've been doing that. And everything that he was saying that he's been doing over that summer while he was there, it manifested. Like, they saw it. The teachers, they saw his tenacity. They saw his skill set. They saw his hardworking. So it was hard to, like dismiss that right so I wanted to stop here and talk about that a little bit like sometimes when we are applying ourselves, we just got to focus on getting the job done working hard to show that we can do it and as you do it the visibility of it indicates and shows to others what you're really all about right so sometimes we we focus too much on like hey I'm doing it I'm doing it check me out like Just do a great job. Identify what you have to offer. Identify where the gaps are. Work on it. And then when the opportunity is presented, deliver. Work your butt off and do the work. So with Reginald, once he started to engage in those conversations about potentially the school admitting him to the program, it was hard for those teachers to kind of bypass him, right? Because he they saw his hard work, right? So So the teachers would talk about him behind door. And then he had an opportunity to actually meet with the dean of Harvard Law School. And he went for it. He said, hey, you know, I would really love to to come here next year. And so then the dean of the law school told him, hey, Reginald, anything we can do to write a, a letter of recommendation to any law school program that's out in the country, just let us know. And Reginald was a little bummed about that because he thought that that was an opportunity for him to get, to get accepted, right? Like that was an opportunity for him to get his foot in the door directly at Harvard Law School. What, what do you mean to write me a letter of recommendation to go elsewhere? But to make a long story short, Reginald ended up going home after the program. And then Reginald received the letter, the letter that welcomed him to Harvard Law School. He did not take the test. 
He did not. He, he, I mean, no traditional pathway to get into a Harvard Law School because what he was able to demonstrate to those teachers and his tenacity and his perseverance and his courage and his not giving up mindset, he was able to open that door. And those doors were open for him to be able to get into Harvard Law School. So this is Reginald. This is literally like the baseline of this guy. He is, he was so incredible in paving the way and creating that pathway. So I want to fast forward a little bit. When Reginald, he ended up having an amazing, amazing time at Harvard for three years. And after he graduated, he ended up getting a job with Paul Wise, Rifkind, Wharton, and Garrison LLP. That's a, it, was a law, it was a law firm in New York. And he, he worked for them for about two years. And then this dude decided that he was going to open his own practice. He was going to open his own practice so he can start doing his own work. He realized that, hey, like, this is great working for these dudes here. Like, I, I got I to start something on my own. Two years after starting to work for this law firm. And in a lot of my work, I focus a lot on ownership. And ownership is not for the sense of being, like, selfish and being, you know, non-collaborative. No, ownership is in the sense of knowing what you have to offer and knowing your self-worth. And I think a lot of times when you're underrepresented individual, right, you can be a minority, whatever it is, it's so much harder to fully take ownership of who we are and what we have to offer. So we allow the outside factor to be the driver of an experience that we have, or sometimes like the direction and pathway that we're going to take in the future, we're going to go. We allow that to be externally. And I think something about Reginald that I realized in his book was that he always took ownership. He always took ownership to who he was, where he wanted to go, and then more importantly, the skill set that he needed to develop in order to get to where he wanted to be. So after two years of working for this law firm in, in New York, he decided to open up his own corporate law practice. And there he started to work slowly but surely building clientele. And one of the things about Reginald's approach that was unique, he always did his due diligence in order to figure out what were the moving parts and where the gaps were in order for him to differentiate his services, but also how his partners and customers benefited from what he was able to present. As he continued to build his momentum on his own, word started to spread around about Reginald's services. And this is, so this time frame that we're talking about, this is, this is 70s. This is what we're talking about in the 70s, right? So it's already like a little bit of an outlier in terms of the pathway that he was taking as an African-American individual working in this space. But his customers that he worked with valued his work ethic. And, and obviously in the business space, what he, you know, the gain and the benefits that they were able to get through his services. 
But Reginald started to realize after deals over deals that he helped through acquisitions, he realized that he needed to pursue his own pathway in making sure that he could make the same deals that he was helping other people make, except doing it on his own. The same resourcefulness he had back in college that led to him getting into law school and Harvard was the same resourcefulness that he had in creating his own pathways. But the resources didn't happen because he had a backing of crazy amount of money to just explore. He had to build as he went, right? So the wins that he was gaining within his own firm was what he was allowing to build upon. He was aggressive. I'm not going to talk about Reginald and kind of fantasize of who he was as a person. He was very aggressive and some thought he was manipulative and some thought that he was heartless at times. But he delivered. And I think sometimes when you are focused, right, you're in that pathway where you're like, I just got to go, 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 go. It's sometimes it's a lot harder to really think about visually all the other moving parts of considering others. And, and, and I think for Reginald, as I, as I read his story, the one thing that I, I thought that it was, you know, a little bit negative was just his interrelationships with people that were close to him or people that weren't close to him. You know, he made, he made a lot of people feel disposable, right? If you didn't work with them in the way that he wanted to work with you, or if you didn't deliver, you know, the hard work that he put in, if you didn't perform in his way, like you would be replaced. So he had this major, major, major win in the, uh, in the early 80s where his first, his first major deal was the purchase of McCall Pattern Company. McCall Pattern Company was a home sewing pattern business. He was able to acquire it for $22.5 million. And then he also went on to actually sell the company. And when he sold the company, he had tremendous profit. The McCall company, when he sold it, was sold for over for over $85 million. So he bought McCall for $22.5, and when he sold it, he sold it for over $85 million. So now, you know, most people would say, hey, you're here. You have arrived. You've made it. That was not good enough for Reginald Lewis. He wanted to continue and get something bigger. Which, in 1987, Lewis bought Beatrice International Foods from Beatrice Company for $985 million. And after he purchased Beatrice, he renamed it to TLC Beatrice International Holding. Beatrice was a commonality of snack food, beverage, grocery stores, 
he became the largest African-American owned and managed business in the U.S. It was incredible to see an African-American person reach this kind of height in the business space. In 1987, Beatrice reported a revenue of $1.8 billion. And Reginald Lewis became the first black-owned company to have more than $1 billion in annual sales. So some of the stuff that I pulled out of the book that I thought it was really interesting was that you know, even when he started to do really well, like he never, you know, like his his office was still fairly small. Like he still, he was still super, super hands-on in a lot, a lot of the deals, all the deals that he was involved with. And he was super, super strategic. The money that I mentioned earlier that he went to purchase Beatrice Company, that money wasn't his money. You know, he, he put down some money, but I think at one point, like from what I read was he brought in like 22 million, but he ended up being the lead shareholder after the purchase was made. So he was always really strategic on bringing people together and then finding a way to um, to make sure that he's still at the at, at the head of the ROM based on whatever initiative that he's pushing. And for a lot of the folks that that he worked with, those were very new experiences, especially for an African-American person to be driving some of this effort and being at the forefront. And one of the things that I realized about his technique, he always leveraged. Like he would work on one thing while he's working on another thing and, and they all are inter, interconnected. But those who are watching, they have no idea how interconnected it is. And then at the end of the deal, you see Reginald ends up on top. As I was reading his story, I was admired by his hard work. I was admired by his tenacity, his poise. But there's other stuff regarding who he was as a person that that really confronted me. His disposable friendship approach where Anybody that was close to him, it was essentially disposable. There's stories and stories within the book of close relationships that he had that ended up getting ruined because of the approach Reginald took. But he was a family man. He focused on his family. He made time to make sure to be there for his family and his children. But I couldn't help to ask how much of the success that he had was contributed to the aggressiveness of almost the, the, the lack of emotional connection that he had with relationships that he, he, he had in place? And for me, I always, I always kind of reflect on that, right? Like when you are a leader, you know, leaders that I admire, I look at, I study them and I look at the approach that they take. There's always a ton of room that I have to reserve for myself regarding how much of me do I let go in order to try to 
pursue a pathway that a certain leader has taken, especially from a moral standpoint. Because my morals grounds me in the approach that I take within my business and my entrepreneurialism and my creation. I try to be intentional around making sure that my morals stays grounded. I recently backed away from, you know, I, I frequently back away from certain contracts at times when I see that, you know, the certain moralities don't align. And when I do that, I'm always reflecting, you know, a lot of people in the business space, you know, you look at the money, you're like, oh my gosh, the money, that's great. But I think it's important as you, as you try to, you know, when you identify what, what's your integrity and what contributes to your integrity and when there's things that are compromising that prevents you from being yourself holistically for the sake of a, a contract or a deal. For me, relationships and interconnection personal, uh, person, personal relationships are, are really important to me. And I think there's always a balance there. So I struggled with some of Reginald's approach in how he, he was very desensitized to certain aspect of emotional impact that he received, but also that he get, he gave out and, 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 um, and it impacted the folks that were around him tremendously. In his book, you get to hear testimonies of how those mishaps impacted those who were close to him. So for this podcast today, I want to throw it back to you. What are you pursuing What are you passionate about? What are certain visions that you have of your future self that if there was no conditions that were to prevent you, that you would be that particular thing? But in which pathway and direction are you willing to take to actually commit, but also do the work? Spend time and understand the the in and outs of that particular thing that you're passionate about. And then identify where you have gaps and allocate the time to develop in order to strengthen those gaps. So when an opportunity is created or when you create the opportunity yourself, that you can engage fully and be able to deliver. With Reginald, he overcame so much barriers. His skin color, his family background, his lack of resources, but he never, ever allowed those things to define who he was. And more importantly, to stop him from pursuing his future self and where he saw himself going. So I want to encourage you, as you listen to this podcast, what are you willing to bound down in and get busy and develop the work ethic? in order to push your ideas, to push who you are as a person forward. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. And as I always say, persevere to excel. Sometimes we have to endure the uncomfortableness in order for us to take ownership and take the pathway that we need to take in order to move forward. And sometimes we're, it's going to feel like we're alone in that pathway. But as long as you focus 
on developing the skills, exploring and persevering by doing the work, whatever the outcome is, gets you closer to closer to where you want to be. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. This is Deo Moano. Thank you.